Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This is our first podcast of 2022 and it's great to be back. This week we're looking at some of the links between policy and science and technology, including the role of the state in technology and how that feeds through to societal outcomes. With me to discuss that is Dr. George Dibb, head of the Centre of Economic Justice at the Institute for Public Policy Research. George Dibb, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks, Gavin. Thanks for having me. So you're one of those people who've actually moved from working in science to working in policy. Tell me a little bit about your own journey and why you made that move. Yeah, that's right. And it's kind of an unusual place to be in, in that I now lead a team of economists, but have a PhD in physics, which makes you quite unique in Westminster. I originally studied natural sciences at university, at the University of Bath, and I specialised in physics. And as I was coming to the end of my degree, I got really interested in the question of how um, science could help in renewable energy and new renewable energy technologies that seemed to me to be like a really important area of technology and something that would become more important as decades would go on. And I was lucky enough at that time to spot an advert for a new doctoral training centre at Imperial College that was in plastic electronics. And there was a specific area of research within that around um, organic photovoltaics, so a new type of solar power technology. And I was successful in my application there and I went to Imperial and did my PhD there, split between the physics and chemistry department. I studied this new type of solar power technology which was kind of on its way towards commercialization. So I was at the kind of early stages trying to work out why it didn't work as well as people wanted it to, or as well as this kind of silicon solar panels you see on, uh, on everybody's roofs these days. And throughout the time of my PhD, the technology itself was getting closer and closer to commercialization. And then I finished my PhD in 2013. And at that time, it was kind of on the verge of commercialization. And I, and I took a postdoc position at the National Physical Laboratory in Teddington. So a government owned metrology institute, research institute, and started to do some research there around the kind of measurement technologies that would be needed on that technology as it moved towards commercial production. So not only was that really a fascinating bit of work, but I got to see this kind of technology move from science and laboratory research and start to understand the kind of the challenges of getting science out into technology and out into the world and the kind of the commercial things which lots of people it never even occurs to people the challenges of making things big or scalable or or on industrial scale and I became increasingly interested at the time about how the interplay between renewable technologies particularly solar energy and government policy and it seems kind of obvious but there are massive links. The price of solar panels is directly linked to the number of solar panels that are made. So if you put in place a policy, which means that lots of people are buying solar panels to put on their roof, then you're, the, the factories that are making those are manufacturing more panels and they get something called the economies of scale, the price goes down. So making this argument, as people did at the time, that renewable energy was too expensive or not possible, didn't really make very much sense to me because that seemed to be totally dependent on government policy. And I took a sideways move at that point, moving from the National Physical Laboratory to a small think tank where I was working on science and manufacturing and innovation technology. 
and through that path then moved into more industrial policy and then up towards economics and I think to some extent that view was probably correct I mean if you look at things like offshore wind and the price of offshore wind that's plummeted way faster than even government projections at the time every time every year the the strike price on offshore energy on offshore wind is lower and lower and I think that's that can be attributed directly to government policy so those kind of questions of the interplay between science and technology and policy and, and putting them into place and accelerating technologies and supporting science is really where where my heart is and what drove me into the career that I'm in now. Well, that's certainly a journey across several different parts of the spectrum that actually the, the Foundation for Science and Technology speaks to. So you're talking a little bit there about uh, solar panels, and I want to sort of broaden that out more generally to technology. There's a sort of a received wisdom that science and technology leads to innovation, innovation leads to wealth creation, and there's a, a role for government in supporting that process from science through technology innovation to wealth creation. And then there's a question of exactly what that process should be and the, the, the role of the state in all of that. Breaking some of that down a little bit, do you see that that model is one that works as a kind of a linear model? And, and that what then should be the, the, sort of the government's role in terms of investing in technology? Or should it be investing only in the generic process of innovation? I'm sure there are lots of people listening who are already screaming that I'm taking a far too linear view of kind of innovation and the route from science to technology. But it's, and it is obviously a simplification. And I think your question about how the interplay between technology and the economy and government and policy is a really interesting one and probably one that, that's kind of been one of the overriding questions for me throughout my career and throughout this move from science into policy. I think. First of all, one of the strangest things looking at it from an economic perspective is there's actually very little understanding in the economics community of science and technology. So even though it's acknowledged, as you said, that, that technology and innovation are good, they result in some kind of growth or change in the economy, some good, there's very little understanding of what that actually is. It's kind of treated as a bit of a black box. And one of the economists that has done the most work on that is, 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 a, is a guy called Brian Arthur, and he, an American economist. And he comes from the kind of complexity theory background, where things are viewed not just as simple chains, but as really complicated systems. But one of the principles that he really introduced is that the economy emerges from the technologies. So the economy itself is a product of the technologies at its disposal. And that seems really strange and probably seems confusing to many people because if you look at polling on thing on, on the economy, most people understand the economy as being about finance and money and flows of money between people. Really, the economy is around kind of production and distribution and consumption. And when you think about it through that lens, it's obvious that the way things are produced in our economy is dependent on kind of what technologies are out there the way things moved around, the way we consume. Just uh, through the pandemic, we've obviously all started consuming things far more through our computers rather than going out to the shops and to restaurants. These kind of things are embedded in technology. So first of all, this idea that the economy itself is emergent from technologies and from science, I think is really useful. And then I, you can see that then if you 
then seek to understand how the government can understand technology. So let's take a, a more kind of more relevant example today about around, say, artificial intelligence and what is the role of that as a technology in the economy. I think lots of people say, well, or you could catch people saying, well, AI is nothing new. It's just software. It's the same kind of computing software we've always seen. But I think if you then try to understand it as a part of a wider system within the economy, you can see why some people are concerned because it fundamentally alters systems within the economy of production and distribution. And most importantly, alters the balance of power between different actors in the economy, between workers and, and their employers. So that's just one example. But I think the system, the systemic view also makes you realize that it goes both ways. Not only does the economy emerge from technology, technology itself is dependent upon the economy that it comes from and the political system that we have. And one of the people I take most inspiration from this on is the economist Mariana Mazzucato. I was lucky enough to work with Mariana at the institute that she set up at UCL, the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. And Mariana's work in her book, The Entrepreneurial State, was to look backwards through kind of the history of different technologies, quite prominent technologies, and look at how they came to, to be developed. And she directly framed this book as kind of confronting myths around where some of these came from. Because at the time, there was this, this message that private companies, entrepreneurs are wealth creators, the state just gets in the way. And the great kind of the crowning heights of our economy are big companies like Apple and they're where they are because of the creativity of those companies. And in the book, The Entrepreneurial State, Mariana goes back and breaks apart those technologies like the iPhone into its constituent parts and looks back and says, well, where did each of these technologies come from? Where did the research for rapid access memory come from? Where did the research that under, uh, underlies the LED or organic light emitting diode screens, where did these come from? And see and, and found that a lot of those technologies were themselves grounded in publicly funded research in universities or research institutes. So I think first we have to acknowledge that role of the government in supporting many of the technologies and science that we see today. For me, as, as a scientist coming to that, that was obvious, but it was not, it's not obvious to many people. I think if you speak to many scientists, especially working in a university, they'll be aware of the effect of public funding on, on supporting that fundamental scientific research and the value of that scientific research to wider society. Of course, that approach can be widely kind of misinterpreted, I'd say, as like underplaying the role of private companies in technologies too. I think what it explicitly tries to do is, is emphasize the role of governments because that has been neglected for some time, but it doesn't underplay the role of companies. I think the system we should be aiming for is one where they work together. So public, the state and companies working together in collaboration and understanding what different ones can bring. So here's a question for you, given the things that you've just been saying, should government be identifying and picking winners in terms of technologies, or should it only be focusing on underlying supporting capabilities that it allows uh, the research community 
to to pick. Now, almost certainly it's a balance between those two, and I accept that. But where where does that balance lie and how does that balance come about? Yeah, so my initial answer to that is certainly that it's a bit of a false choice. You don't have to do one or the other. You can do both. And the, the thing that the state has proven itself to be extremely good at is supporting that blue sky, curiosity-driven scientific research that happens in universities, because essentially it's so far away from a product or a consumable, something that a company can sell and make money on. Very few companies are going to be willing to invest in science that far from their business. And therefore it ha- it's left to the, to the government to support that because otherwise no one else would do it. And because of that recognition that science is so important. The question then though is, though, do you also have to kind of add on to that something which picks some of those and tries to accelerate them. And I think ultimately that is the approach we have to take. I think there are big risks. I mean, I mean, use the words picking winners. That's often used as kind of a critique of industrial policy, which in the past was guilty, well, not so much of picking winners, but or picking losers, really, endlessly plowing money into into specific companies or technologies that ultimately had no use or, or no no future rather but i think again we can look to some of the work of uh, mariana Mascato around instead of picking technologies picking problems that we want to solve so let's take a very relevant example today of, of net zero and, and, and the scientific and technological challenges that we know are, we have to, to overcome if we're going to achieve our ambition of decarbonizing the economy. We know that we need to decarbonize our transport system. We know we need to decarbonize our energy system. We know we need to decarbonize our homes and insulate them better. There's a big difference between saying we're going to support anything which helps us get towards that aim. And yes, that will be costly and we'll have to put money in. It might not have a clear financial payback. And the alternative approach, which can rightly be criticised as picking winners, are saying, well, we're going to uh, pick this company based in Chichester and we're going to give them a grant of £10 million and they're going to be the government-approved supplier of insulation to people's homes. What we're talking about here is not a return to... I don't know, 19, economies of the 1970s where the state owned massive companies, everything from car manufacturers to removals companies were all publicly owned. I think if you talk more in, in, in problems and challenges and supporting the technologies that we need to overcome and thinking then about how the government can help promote or support structural change, that's a much better approach for policy. And do you think that the government itself has the right systems and the right structures in order for it to be able to play this particular role of showing the direction and investing in a direction, but not picking individual companies? Has it has it got the systems it needs to do that? I think some recent steps uh, are really welcome. So I'd say no, but we're on our way there, let's hope. So things like some of the listeners may have heard of ARIA, the Advanced Research and Invention Agency, which has been recently set up by the government, kind of that's explicitly set up as a space where government is able to take big bets on on high risk, but transformational research. And that's directly echoing kind of DARPA or ARPA in the US, which was able to do that. And 
and DARPA was successful in many ways. I mean, DARPA invented the internet technology that me and you are using to, uh, today to communicate. So do, they, do we have the right structures? In some ways, yes, but in some ways, no. I'd say one of the key ways in which we don't is about how we understand investment. So I've spoken just now about how important investment in technologies is. But for public investment, the way we measure it is quite limited. We can only get, can only justify public investment, rightly so, because we don't want to waste it, but we can only justify public investment where we know we're going to get payback. Now, the Treasury, the government department which manages public expenditure is set up to worry about that. And they use models to understand that, but they have particularly short-sighted approach to investment. And they have a very, and they're much more biased towards things which have a tangible output that you can trace back to that investment. Now, I hope that people who are listening to this, who work in science and technology understand that that is exactly the wrong approach to take if you're trying to justify investment in science. It's hard to think of a, a worse model for understanding the role of science in society and in the economy, because it's very hard to connect a million pounds spent on a UKRI grant to the actual economic change 20 years later. Science also in its nature is highly uncertain. So you don't know what you're going to get out when you put that money in. Speaking from personal experience, the technology that I did my PhD on and I spoke about earlier did not successfully traverse from the laboratory to commercialization. There are just there are inherent uncertainties in science and technology. So I think we need to put in place some of the things there to, to, to make sure that we are able to think about public investment in a different way. And then lastly, I'd say government has had lots of schemes recently. That, you know, we have an innovation strategy now. We've previously had an industrial strategy. And in fact, generations of industrial strategies going back uh, over the past 20, 30 years. There's an element, though, of change and chopping and changing, which also can be quite damaging. So the last industrial strategy survived uh, until last year. So you, you, I think you have to have policies and strategies that exist on the same time scale that science and business can actually respond to. And changing every two, three, four years just isn't going to achieve that. So you've talked about policy and strategy. You've talked about investment. I want to ask you one other thing that the government is responsible for in this technology area, and that's regulation. And to what extent can regulation be used as a force for good in this area? And to what extent is it used as a break on technology leading to uh, developments in the economy? Yeah, it's a good one. It's a really good question, because I think, again, it's one of these areas where there are there are myths that you hear. If you, lots of people say, well, regulation is bad for innovation. It's a barrier to innovation. Government red tape um, is a problem for businesses and we, should, and we should scrap as much red tape as possible. I think that ultimately the right answer is that it's a balance because yes, there are cases where regulation can hamper innovation. Poorly written regulations might put in place barriers for, for companies which are trying to create with innovative uh, solutions to existing problems. One example that immediately comes to mind is that um, a logistics company was trying to uh, trying to innovate with electric bikes to make sure they could um, use zero carbon energy instead of a petrol van to deliver parcels to people's homes. 
But all the regulations around how they could use these meant that that just wasn't possible. So the way that the regulation had been framed had been all around imagining the internal combustion engine in a van. And no one had ever thought that anyone would want to use an bicycle, electric bicycle. The flip side of that, though, is that regulation can also create aspirations or targets that companies can innovate toward. They can, in regulation, when well-written, can spur creativity because it creates a problem which people have to overcome. One thing that companies are great at is doing that sort of thing. So an example of that would be there's a scheme in Japan called, I think it's called the Top Runner Programme. And essentially on a recurring timescale, so say every three years, the best performing product in class becomes the minimum standard for future years. So in one year, in one period, they'll look at what's the most efficient fridge in the market. And then for the next period, the most efficient fridge becomes the minimum standard. So every other manufacturer has to aspire towards that minimum and everyone else has got to keep innovating towards that. The great benefit of that is that companies constantly have to keep investing in change and in creativity. And not only that, it drives towards things that we know we want anyway, things that are broad societal goods like using less electricity, cheaper products, etc. So I, I take the view that it's a bit of a balancing act and maybe that's a bit of a get out with my answer. But I think ultimately that is the challenge that um, government regulators have to have to overcome. But the answer isn't scrapping all regulations or creating a whole rule book of, of new ones, rather just regulating better. So I've got one final question for you. If for some very strange and unexpected reason you suddenly found yourself responsible for UK technology and innovation policy for the UK government, what do you think your priorities would be over the next, say, two or three years? Yeah, it's a good question. I hope that by this point in the podcast, your listeners aren't screaming with horror at the idea of me being in charge of government policy. Ultimately, investment is key um, in science and technology. We, the UK is a powerhouse in terms of its scientific output, but we do that on a pretty meagre budget. We're way below the, the average among developed countries. And the government has rightly identified that and has put in place now plans to improve R&D investment. But looking at what other countries have done, Korea managed to, South Korea managed to go from one of the, the lowest investing countries in R&D to now the, the OECD country, which invests more than anyone else. And they did that over a 20 year timescale. So it is incremental change, but long-term change. So I think driving up investment in R&D will be critical. The flip side of that, of course, is that there's got to be the absorptive capacity for all that new money flowing into the system. So making sure that universities and research institutes out there are able to expand and grow their research and R&D capabilities um, and capacities to actually absorb that new funding and to put it to use. I think the other thing is thinking not just about R&D expenditure in universities and research institutes and in the public sector, but also into business. That has to be an absolute priority for any government is driving up R&D and innovation in private companies. There's an excellent book called uh, Science Policy Under Thatcher by uh, UCL historian John Agar. And he talks about how under the Thatcher governments in the 80s, the UK government stepped back from close to market research and decided to put more of our funding into curiosity-driven blue sky research. And we are undoubtedly excellent in that area, but I think ultimately we need to think 
if we're going to think about how we can transform more of these technologies and science into societal goods, we need to think about how to join up universities to business. Uh, I already spoke a little bit earlier about the treasury and the barriers that the treasury and the institutions of government put in place um, for an investment. I think we should make sure that we, we address those. I'd personally be advocate breaking apart the treasury so we actually have a budgetary department, but also one that thinks about the long-term shape and direction of the economy and balances those two things rather than just holding those purse strings very tightly. But I think ultimately the biggest thing has to be long-termism and trying to approach it in the mindset that's of South Korea, that this isn't going to be a two or three year problem to solve. It's going to be a two or three decade problem to solve and making sure we put in place the institutions and governance around science and technology today, putting things like the Industrial Strategy Council onto a statutory footing in the same way that the Climate Change Committee is, which has led to real long-term foresighted policymaking, because ultimately that's how we're going to make the most of our scientific and technological capabilities in a way that improves, um, well, ultimately improves the lives of everyone. Fantastic. Well, if the government do come calling, it's good to know that there's a plan that's all we've got time for, uh, Dr. George Dibb. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gavin. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Dr. George Dibb, head of the Centre for Economic Justice at the Institute for Public Policy Research. You can find details of all the activities of the Foundation on our website at www.foundation.org.uk including all previous editions of this podcast. Next week, I'll be talking about the role of the Office for National Statistics in helping inform science policy and science advice. And my guest will be Professor Sir Ian Diamond, National Statistician and Head of the Office for National Statistics. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>